Take your Bible and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We're going to begin in verse 9. It, uh, it has been a journey, hasn't it? Uh, some of you are really, really excited about this day uh, because it's uh, the end of this sermon series through Ecclesiastes. Others of you, though you may be glad, you know, all of us tend to get near the end and want to get done with whatever project or whatever thing we're doing. Uh, but I was sharing with some of you for the pastor, uh, finishing up an expositional series is, is like, um, in some ways, saying goodbye to a friend because the book has become a friend to you. Um, you've de- dug in uh, to the wealth of riches of knowledge and wisdom and glorious truth about our Savior from this text. And though you know you're headed to another text, which will also bear much fruit, I mean, you're, you're kind of torn. And I feel that way about Ecclesiastes, believe it or not. What I found in this uh, Ecclesiastes writer is someone who is un- unafraid of the truth. Too many of us are trying to live in denial of the realities of the world that we live in. And the writer of Ecclesiastes takes, takes our head and turns it to the situation of this life. And then, masterfully at the end, what we're going to see today, he turns it to the Savior. You see, he today will not undo any of the things he has taught us. He will put a stamp of approval on them and say, these things come from God himself. And they are true. And also, there's hope. There's hope. Look at what the passage says. Verse 9 says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging Many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. Like nails, stakes, nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I want to bring you a sermon entitled, Fear equals obedience. That's what our writer is saying to us. You know, when we were created, when mankind was created in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, our first parents, they, like us, needed a shepherd. And they had one, God himself. God gave them a very simple command. And God met with them. We know this regularly because Adam and Eve expected his arrival They went and hid from him when they had done wrong. They knew he was coming. The creator was also their shepherd. The transcendent 
was also intimate. He walked in the garden in the cool of the day with his people. And he gave them one simple command. You shall eat of all the trees of the garden, but of this one tree you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. How did it go? About like it goes for us. They believed the lie rather than the truth. They trusted the hireling, the thief, and not the shepherd. And they strayed from the path of obedience. That's really the story of mankind. In need of a shepherd, because he will always stray from the truth. He will not obey. You see it in our own children, don't you? <laughs> this hadn't ceased to be the truth. You can be sure of this, parents. Whatever you say to your small child, do not do, they will see just how serious you are about do not do. They will push the limits. And in your frustration, you think, I have the worst child that has ever existed. And God says, have you met yourself lately? <laughs> because this is an inherited problem. This sin runs in all of us. This thread of rebellion runs in all of us. And it began with our first parents. And we've all lived out the truth that we need a shepherd, don't we? Without a shepherd, we go astray. Even with the best shepherd, they went astray. And so, our book tells us this truth at the end as an epilogue. Now, in the ancient day when they read books, they read books a little different than we do often, and that is they went to the end and they read it. Some of you are wild. You do that too. You go to the end and you read it, the conclusion. You say, is this book worth reading or not reading? Right? Some of you do. Some of you are sitting here like, of course I don't. There's a table of contents. There's an introduction, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. But there is an advantage of knowing the end when you begin. And what it tells you is the purpose of the writer often. And what I would con uh, contend from our passage today, the purpose of the author becomes crystal clear. And you should, this next week, go back and read through Ecclesiastes again with this end in mind. Because when you do, it all in a sense, snaps into place. Here is what our writer has written about all along. That the whole of man is in need of one thing. Fear of God that leads to obedience. Fear of God that leads to obedience. So let's look at this passage. You know, it's coming in on verse 8 there, which is not a part of this preaching text, but I want to bring it in because it's, it's an inclusio. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. That's the same exact phrases as chapter 1, verse 2. The beginning of the introduction ends with vanity of vanities. The preacher says all is vanity. The same thing here. What is that in the Hebrew language, in the Hebrew uh, literature? An inclusio is written in such a way that the beginning and the end are parentheses by a repeated statement. Everything, in other words, in our book from verse 2 all the way to chapter 12, verse 8, 
is included in his argument. He begins by arguing uh, that how he went about his business of seeking wisdom. He tells us how he did it. With wisdom and with great care, he began to pursue different avenues to find hope and meaning in this life. And every one of them was a cul-de-sac. Every one of them an end without satisfaction. What, what roads did he go down? What paths did he travel? Well, he traveled the path of pleasure. He traveled the path of toil. He traveled the path of wisdom and folly. He traveled the paths of power and authority. He traveled all the paths that he's laid out. And at the end, like the beginning, what does he say? It's all havel. All of it is a puff of smoke. It has no substance in the end. No hope can you find in the things of this world under the sun. That's what the preacher says. And now he writes his epilogue. Besides all these things, he says, being wise, the preacher sought not only to be wise, but to teach the people. He didn't just learn it for himself, but he wanted to train us. Ecclesiastes then is an extended uh, test case. Young people, instead of going down the wrong roads, the writer of Ecclesiastes would say, read my book. Read my book. He's being a wise teacher. I've experienced these things before you, and I'm telling you, you will never find hope in them. Oh, you know, sexual pleasure? You want to go down that road? Can you exceed Solomon in his search for significance in sexual pleasure with all of his wives and his concubines? Uh, drugs and alcohol, that, that might be a good end. Let's try that one. Solomon says, I made my heart happy with a lot of wine. And at the end, it was all vanity. It was all vanity. Work. You young people may be right now thinking and dreaming about how much your work is going to bring you satisfaction in the end. And Solomon says, I built the greatest empire in Israel's history. I brought the wealth of the world into the storehouse of the treasury of the temple. And it was a puff of smoke. Wisdom and folly. You want to be the old age wise guy that has all the right answers and can see all of the foolishness for what it really is. And he says, even in that, you won't find hope under the sun. It's all vanity. He's being a wise teacher. The teacher not only gained wisdom, but he used it effectively through his writings, through his teaching. He arranged them how? He arranged them, he said. He weighed them out, he studied them, and then he began to arrange them with great care. So when you were reading Ecclesiastes, you thought, and sometimes admittedly I thought, He's chasing rabbit trails. He's running all over the place. But look what he says. He says, listen, the writer of Ecclesiastes has not chased random thoughts, but rather he's put them in order. He's taking great care to make certain that he is putting them in an order that will be truthful. Notice what he says. And delightful. That's what he says. The preacher sought to find words of delight. He took great care to find words of delight. In other words, he was, for you preacher types, he was worried about his homiletics and his hermeneutics. In plain people speak, he worried about saying something that would stick with you and truthful. <laughs> he wasn't just worried about the truth, blunt, here it is, thus says the Lord. But he wanted to say it in a crafted in a way that you and I would have it stick in our minds. How do we know that? Because look at what verse 11 says. The wise sayings are like goats. Now, a goad is a prod. 
It's a stick with, in their day with a sharp end. And you use it with cattle. When cattle need to be directed and you're the one directing them, you can poke them here and poke them there and they will take turns to get away from your poking. Right? They'll speed it up. They'll go after it. So he says, it's not like, and, and you know this about yourself, I, you don't have to admit it out loud, but you, you and I, we need someone to push us a little. He's saying, these words are like those things which push the cattle, push them to go. But look what he also says. They're not just that they're goads, but they're nails. They're stakes, like tent pegs. They're there to securely fasten them in our minds and our hearts. The book of Ecclesiastes was written by a wise man who became a teacher of the people. And his desire was to have these things both guide us, goad us, direct us, and stick with us forever. There are so many lines in, a, in Ecclesiastes that we will never forget. About the three cord or three strand that are braided together that cannot be broken. About the fact that although we uh, find pleasure in the moment, in the long run, that pleasure will lead to our judgment, our death. The lack of a fear of God doesn't prepare a man for the end of his life. The writers told us this. All of these sayings are designed to press us, push us towards an ultimate goal. So this wise teacher, arranging all that he gained and began to teach and with great knowledge, with care. How did he take care? Well, he worried about how he would say it and what he would say. He didn't leave out either side. Why? So that it might push us, press us towards the goal and stick with us forever. So the first part of this passage is lay him laying out from uh, his, his uh, way of going about his task. He's an effective teacher. He has a great desire that we never forget what he has said. And he said it in such a way that it would be memorable to us. Where did he gather these statements? These goads and these stakes, where did they come from? Well, verse 11 tells us they are given by one shepherd. The book of Ecclesiastes is not the rambling of a really smart guy. The book of Ecclesiastes is not the writings, as some of you may have thought at times, of a madman. The book of Ecclesiastes comes from God himself. Some have tried to play around with this text and they say, well, you know, this, this is a reference to Moses who was the shepherd of Israel in his day. Some have said, well, this is just a reference. The, the epilogue written by a narrator is now saying that Solomon behaved as a shepherd in his day. And so it's, that's the sayings. They all came from Moses or they all came from Solomon. But this is just denying the supernatural in favor of the natural. Notice that some of your translators have capitalized that word shepherd. And indeed, God is called a shepherd throughout the scriptures, is he not? We see his shepherding activity in the garden, the way he cared for his people with intimacy. But didn't he do the same thing with Abraham? Didn't he do the same thing with the people of Israel? Isn't it Psalm 80 that tells us that the Lord is the shepherd of Israel? 
And what about that famous passage that we all know, that you're already thinking about? You're like, come on, Carlton, there's an obvious one you're not getting to, Psalm 23. What does David say? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We don't want for knowledge or wisdom because our shepherd has given us his wisdom. Yes, in the book of Ecclesiastes, our shepherd has given us his wisdom. Our shepherd is a good shepherd. He has arranged through the mind of this writer all that we need to know about this life under the sun. It is unfulfilling and it ends with damnation. It will never satisfy your heart to chase after the pathways that are described in this book. You can go and achieve the highest achievements in the human realm. But if you stay under the sun for all of your years, you will die and face the judgment of the king. So we know where this wisdom comes from. It comes from the shepherd, the great shepherd. And then in verse 12, he says, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Beware of anything beyond these. In other words, what he's saying is, you that like to read in the white spaces of your Bibles, beware. If the Bible doesn't say it, then you don't need to say it. (laughs) If the Bible doesn't approach a subject, it's safe that we also don't approach that subject, especially dealing with our God. Young people, let me talk to you just for a moment because we live in a spirit and an age you, you older folk can listen in too because you'd be tempted to go this direction. But you young folks, you young folks are growing up in one of the hardest and most difficult days that we have ever seen. It's not maybe for all the reasons that you think. You can Google sh- search. You can Google search now for just about anything and you can find endless answers. Matter of fact, this week, somebody read something where, where something was said and I I couldn't believe it, so I did Google it, and I found the answer to be true. I typed in the search, overwhelmed with information, and what I got was 16 million responses. This is a problem that our forefathers did not face. Just because there is information doesn't mean you need that information. And the writer of our passage says, son, listen, to go beyond what God has written for you is a dangerous thing. Now, some of you are torn with that in philosophies. That's why you've ended up in fatalism (laughs) instead of the right understanding of God's sovereign providence. Some of you are doing that in the sexual area. So you think you've progressed beyond the Apostle Paul in his teaching of the family code and the sexual ethic that we should live with as Christians. Because you Googled it, and Google returned millions of responses of alternate ways to live. Some of you have done this with your finances, and you've done it with the way that you have friends, and you've done it with the pursuits you're giving your life to. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes says is, though all of those things, all of those things, that you would go beyond what God has said in his book, It will bring you to weariness of flesh. You will literally screw yourself down into the ground, the grave, 
and die unhappy because your desire will never be satisfied in God and God alone. What he's given to us, church, is the perfect word which is equal to his name. Is that not enough for us? Do we really need Fox News, CNBC, NBC? Do we really need all of these other things? Or do what, is it what we need is a, a mind so transformed and transfixed by the word of God that we see the world the way God sees the world. And our aim in this world is his aim in this world. He says, be careful. Be careful because the shepherd has given us what we need. He's, he's given us all that we need. And anything else beyond that makes for many books and lots of reasoning. But a weariness of the flesh. Do you know that next year, this year, and next year, and probably the next year, and the number will probably increase. Do you know last year a million books were published? A million books. I think about men like Jonathan Edwards. His library would fit on one of my shelves. It was all he had. And then I look at what, how he writes and how I write. And obviously all of those books aren't doing me much good. <laughs> you know why? Because of all of his failures. And he had them. He had this book. And this book had him. And so he was undistracted with all of the things the world was saying. And he was transfixed on what the Son of God was saying in the book. We live in an age where preachers would rather read books about preaching than they had to read the Bible and preach it. We live in an age where church people will clap and, and, and get excited about the next church growth strategy, but they will not repent of their sins when they are faced them in the scriptures themselves. We live in an age where we'd rather be entertained than we had to be challenged with the holiness of God. We live in an age where we have gone away, church. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about us. We have gone away from the instruction of this writer. All the books in the world will lead to weariness of flesh. You have the words of the shepherd. Stick to them. And so this is his charge. And then he brings us to the end. The end of the matter is this. <laughs> I like it when a preacher says the end. Even when I say it. But you've learned that that may be another 20 minutes. Our, our preacher is much better than that. He lands the plane. All has been heard. This verse sums up all of the Old Testament, by the way. Not just Ecclesiastes, all of the Old Testament. And by extension, it is fulfilled fully in the New Testament. Fear God and keep his commandments. What is fear of God? Fear of God is the right respect and awe of the greatness and the goodness of our creator who works everything according to his righteous plan for his glory and our good. Fear of God is right respect and honor and reverence and awe of our God who does all things right and good. 
it leads immediately to worship. You don't fear God if you don't worship him. And if you fear God, you worship. When people came into the presence of God uh, and manifestations of God, they had a unified response, and that was to worship. (laughs) Whether it was taking their shoes off because they were on holy ground or whether it was because they were holding on, saying, I will not let you go until you bless me, which is a form of worship in itself, or whether it was David in all of his psalms crying out for the, full, the, for, the, for the satisfying, clean, and pure water that only God can give, or whether it was the writer of our text who constantly, seven times, said to us throughout this book, fear God, fear God. Fear God, fear God. They all ended in worship. Or if it was Isaiah, as he stood in the presence of Christ and got the charge to go and realized he was a man of unclean lips. Whoever it was, when they came into his presence, they worshiped. And in the New Testament, it is no different, is it? Whenever the Lord approached those who were demon-possessed, what did the demons do? They gave un, they could not do anything but give unqualified allegiance by calling him Lord. Why are you tormenting us? This is not your day. Even the demons know and they shudder. They worship. The apostle Paul, who was Saul on the road to Damascus, when he came into the bright light, what did he do? He worshiped. And when you came into his presence for the very first time and really realized you were in his presence, what did your heart do? It feared God, which led to worship. And this fear of God is played out in keeping his commandments. You don't fear him if you don't obey him. In the areas you're not obeying him, You have fooled yourself into believing that he will not judge you in those areas. That's the only way we're able to sin. To forget God in this moment and how he will see and view what I do. And how he will make account for it. That's the only way we're able to sin, believers. It's a lack of a fear of God. We've become far too familiar with him. As if he's our old buddy or our old pal. And while he is the friend, beyond all friends, he is not to be trifled with. He will not excuse the sin that we commit. He will not ignore it. He will have it paid for. Fear him and obey his commands. The two are tied together. So I want to press on to the end God, why is it that we fear him? Because God will bring every deed of the whole of mankind. That whole duty of man, the duty, the word duty is not in the Hebrew. It's being supplied to help us understand in English. It's, it's reflecting back to the commandments there. The duty of man is to obey the commandments. But I don't think that's what the passage actually is driving us for. I think it's better understood to be the whole of man. The whole of mankind 
has this responsibility of fearing God and keeping his commandments. Why? Because the whole of mankind will be judged before God. All of the deeds, good and evil, will be brought before him. And all of them will be brought to judgment. If you know that your father is coming home, it will encourage your behavior Our Father is coming home. It should encourage our behavior. Church, we have had the awesome privilege for weeks now to think about life under the sun. And we have been challenged to understand the frivolousness of this life without Christ. And now today we get the joy of seeing that we have a shepherd. So I want to take the end of this sermon to go to our shepherd. Who is it that can save me from the wrath of God? Who is it that can, because he obeyed his father, well up in me the desire to obey the father? Well, it's Jesus, isn't it? Turn to John chapter 10, and we will close by just reading and quickly commenting on this passage. Verse 7, Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You want a full life? Don't chase after the things under this sun. Chase after the sun who is above the sun. You want a full life? Don't go down the sexual pleasure road or the power road or the wealth road or all the roads that this world holds out and says the kingdoms of this world can be yours, but follow the path of the Son because it's in Him that you will have green pasture and fullness of life. He goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. How is it that we will have this good road? Because our shepherd bought it for us. Our shepherd is the good shepherd. Because he saw our sin. And rather than turning from it, he came in the flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And didn't he fulfill it for us? Every point. Having done the work necessary to have relation with his Father, keeping that word which was, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he kept it. Having looked at the commandments of God at Mount Sinai and kept them, 
due all of the blessings that only those who keep the law can receive. At that moment, our Savior said, All that I have earned, Father, give it to my sheep. And we, rebellious, stubborn, sinful, failures that we are, he said, give me their sin. And on his back, he carried that sin to the cross. And he died. Outside the gate, with the dogs and the sinners, our great Savior died. Why? Because the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So that they can come in and out through him and find the goodness of God. He transferred what he had earned to us. Don't ever let anybody confuse you. Our salvation is earned. Nobody will come to the Father unless their salvation was earned. It cost the life of the Son of God. And it required His complete obedience for His entire life in the flesh. And Christian, our shepherd, did that to bring us to His Father. He came and got us, squirming in our blood. He came and found us and brought us to himself. That is our shepherd. He didn't do it in another way. He didn't climb over the walls. He didn't break in through a back door. He just came right through the gate of the requirements of God. And he earned our salvation. And having earned it, he gave it to us as a gift. You know why you love Christmas so much if you're a little kid? Because you're greedy. You're a sinner. I, all, all, all my life as a child, you know the magic of Christmas? It's greed. Try me out. Don't buy your kids any present this year. But do you know why? Do you know why your parents love Christmas? Because they worked hard all year to give you what you get. Our Savior, He did more than go to a job. He lived in the presence of His Father without ever failing. He had the smile of God upon Him. And He said, Father, take my account and credit it to them. It's His joy to save sinners like us. The hired land will not do what the shepherd does. He will not. He doesn't own the sheep. He sees wolves coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees them and the wolf will scatter them and snatch them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep. Thank God he had other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. 
and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd, the shepherd who gave us the book of Ecclesiastes, this shepherd, that gave us the wisdom from the heart of God. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. If I have authority to lay it down, I will have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so they pressed Jesus later in the passage. Tell us, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. And Jesus said in verse 25, I told you. I told you, and you do not believe. So we have in this congregation those who have the knowledge of the Son of God as their Savior. They are the sheep that belong to the shepherd. The shepherd has laid down his life for them and bought them and purchased them. And we have those who are still asking, are you really the Christ? Just tell us. Listen to what Jesus says to you. I told you. And you don't believe. My works, my works that I've done in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my Father's hand. In my hand, my Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Christian, you believe because the Father has given you to the Son, and the Son has purchased you with his own life. With the good works of the law, he did them all and fulfilled them, actively doing everything required for salvation. And then he passively gave his life on the cross, taking your sin on himself so that you might live forever. And he might get the joy, which he said in this text, of giving you to the Father. And if you're here and you're in unbelief, you need to ask yourself a question. And that question is, is do I hear the voice of the shepherd this morning? Do I hear the voice of the shepherd? If you hear the voice of the shepherd, then I beg you, come to him. Come. He has invited you. He has called you. He has commanded you. He has purchased you. Come to him. And he will give you the rest. He will give you the satisfaction. He will give you the rewards and the glory that you so much desire. If you don't have him this morning, come to him. He is the good shepherd. There is no satisfaction outside of him. There is no glory outside of him. There is no peace outside of him. Come. He's calling you. He's extended himself to you. The only thing left for you to do is come. And so we're going to close our eyes now at the end of Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to come. How do you come? Well, you come very simply. You come by knowing the sureness of the knowledge of your sin. Anyone here outside of Christ, you are outside of Christ because you are a sinner. You have denied the glory of God himself. You have fallen short. And so you must know that you are a sinner. But that knowledge leads to the despair of under the sun. 
It's all vanity. Unless you take the second step, which is to believe in the gospel that I've already extended to you in this sermon. That Jesus Christ has earned your forgiveness and your inheritance. And he, in his death, burial, and resurrection, has forever brought you to the Father. So do you believe it? You can't earn it. He already earned it. You can't deserve it because you've already fallen short. The question is, will you believe it? Will you believe in him? Will you trust in him? Will you treasure him above all else? Find your deepest satisfaction and joy in him. Will you not go beyond the words that are in the book and weary your flesh? You must know you're a sinner. You must know that he's a great savior. And then you must call on him. Because the Bible says that the one who believes in his heart and confesses with his mouth that the Lord, that Jesus is Lord, will be saved. That's not a maybe. That's not, well, if God gets around to it or if he decided he likes you today or not. No, it's a definite. If you know your sin and you know this Savior, then what you need to do while we sing together is call on him from your heart. Believe in him and you will be saved. I didn't promise it. He did. He said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep know me and I know my sheep. If you hear his voice as we sing, I'm just calling on you to believe in him. Stop singing and pray to him right now and call on him that he might save you this morning. Let's sing together in worship of our King.